Father, we come before you on this special day, a day preceding another one of your feasts, the third in the series this year. We pray that what we would do here and say here and conduct our ways would be according to you and pleasing to you. We thank you for the many who are coming out, coming into truth. Help them as they search for you and help us help them as well. We pray that you'll guide us. Be with those that have a special need, those that are ailing, those that have trials they're dealing with, she would be their Yahweh Rapha and help them as well. So we can all rejoice together as brethren. We pray also that you'll guide us now and into all truth as our words become yours. We pray that you'll be with us now, this day, in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. And you may all be seated. Great to have our visitors and guests today and also for those online, great to have you join. You know, I read uh, some of these surveys. We have a survey out online, and people write their comments at the bottom. Get comments like, yeah, I've been watching you guys for four years. First time we ever heard from them. You know? uh, I like what you're doing, and uh, well, please <laughs> communicate with us. Let's, uh, let's get together and... Uh, Share thoughts because it's important that we do. That's part of the body of Messiah. Don't be afraid. Just uh, you know, let us know what you're uh, you're thinking. If we can help you with anything, certainly do that. We can do that here, and we do it. You know, on Sabbath when people have questions, we sit down with them after service and after we eat, and uh, we discuss things. But it's kind of hard to do online that way. But uh, you can still communicate with us, and we'd love to hear from you, email or uh, some of the other social media. You know, a tried and true method to understanding any biblical teaching, or any teaching really, is to go back to the first time it's mentioned, go back to the first time it's presented, the first time we learn about it, to get the roots of that teaching, that message. We can find out more about it if we know where it comes from. We do the same thing with history. We know where the church comes from because we know the historical developments of how it came to be as it is. Because this is Pentecost weekend, I thought it good to take another look at the Holy Spirit, which is central in the events, of course, of Pentecost in Acts 2. Uh, It's a big part of it. And it's one of the, uh, the important feasts that actually was kind of a turning point. Um, We'll talk about that later. Despite the focus on the Spirit in Acts 2, The Spirit did not first appear in the New Testament, in Acts 2. The Spirit was active all the way from creation itself. You know, the apostle knew the truth about the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 8.11, But if the Spirit of him... Now notice the way he phrases that, because that's part of the truth of what the Spirit is. The Spirit of him that raised up Yahshua, well, who's... Yahweh, obviously, his father, from the dead, dwell in you. He that raised up Messiah from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit. Are you catching that? That dwells in you. His spirit. Now, that's significant. Now, let's explain why. First, we see that the spirit belongs to Yahweh. Spirit belongs to Yahweh. It's not an independent, freewheeling, standalone, maverick being out there doing his own thing aside from Yahweh and Yahshua. It's not out there doing what it wants to do. It is under the complete control of Yahweh and Yahshua. He's not co-equal in power and authority, as some believe in the triune deity. Second, Having his indwelling spirit is central to your salvation, to my salvation. Because if we don't have the spirit, the Bible says we're none of his, we're none of Yahweh's. Paul says that in verse 9. So, how do we get it? Well, the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14 that the Holy Spirit is endowed following immersion by the laying on of hands of of the presbytery. What's the presbytery? That's eldership. That's the ministry. That precludes any any old guy out there baptizing people because he can't give the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit is the other half of the importance of baptism. He can't do it. It says it has to be done by the hands of the presbytery. And that's why when we have a baptism, we have the person come up and we lay hands on them for the Spirit. If the eldership did not lay hands on you for the Spirit following your baptism, you're, I'm, I'm sorry, but your immersion is incomplete. And there's a lot of people getting baptized that have no idea about laying on hands of the Spirit. Even though they see Yahshua after his baptism, the Spirit came down, remember, like a dove, on him. And Yahweh says, this is the son I'm well pleased with. Some comment that if it's not done into the name, I should say, the same comment, if it's not done in the name of Yahshua, it's, it's also incomplete. Because Acts 4.12 says there's only one name by which we shall be saved. So, this begs the question, what happens to all those whose lives predated Acts 2? What about them? What are the Old Testament faithful in the Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11? All those people are talks about will one day be resurrected. How did that happen? If the Spirit first came in Acts 2, obviously they have the Spirit somehow, right? That's the only way it could happen, or we're contradicting the New Testament. So, there were others who had the Spirit back then. The pivotal criteria for receiving it was and is obedience, Acts 5.32. And as I told that minister who came to argue with us one time at a seminar we held, I said, he thought he had the spirit, kind of a charismatic guy. I said, do you obey him? And then he got mad. What do you mean obey him? Well, his laws. Well, that's Old Testament. Well, Acts 5.32 says if, if you get his spirit by obedience. And you see these people that lived before Acts 2 were certainly the faithful of Yahweh, and they were obedient to him, Right? Or they wouldn't be in the kingdom eventually. By their obedience, these ancients must have had the spirit in some degree or sense. It's the only deduction I can make. Well, my purpose today is to examine the essence and work of the Holy Spirit, especially in an era where, area where few like to venture today the Old Testament, which is the foundation for the New Testament, if they would be honest with themselves. Central to understanding the question is whether or not the Spirit is a third person and a triune deity. How does that belief fit Scripture? That's all we want to know. How does it fit? 99% of churchianity, when it comes to the Trinity doctrine, simply assume it's a teaching of Yahweh straight out of the Scriptures. They never look for it. They never analyze. They never search. and never try to find you know, the proof of what they believe. They don't do it. Go talk to the minister and he'll tell you. He'll tell you what I believe. They don't know that this teaching was a long work in progress. I mean, it was something else. Hammered out through much turmoil, conflict, trauma, persecution, and even death for those that didn't go along with the teaching. As we're Many surviving teachings of today's churchianity that aren't supported in the word. They don't realize when you read the history, whoa, this is where these teachings came from? Numerous doctrines that deviated from the word were forged out of 20 plus church councils. Why do you have to have a church council when the Bible plainly says, says what it is? Plainly tells you what the teaching is. Why do you need a church council you know, with, with a whole bunch of guys to get together, why do, you, why do you need that to try to hammer out what Scripture plainly tells us? You don't. You don't. But when you're trying to manipulate, you're trying to change things, ah, then you've got to consider all the ramifications. If we teach this, what's going to happen here? If we teach that, people are going to, oh, what's going to happen? You know, but you just teach the word, no problem. We don't, we don't go by doctrine by committee. We go by doctrine by the word. All scripture is given by inspiration. Profitable for doctrine, research, uh, reproof. Correction in righteousness. That's all you need is the scriptures. Even in the Reformation, sola scriptura. Scripture only was the cry. You don't need a church behind it if you follow the scriptures. That's all you got to do. But when you're concocting a major teaching that's nowhere in the Word, then you've got to try to legitimize it as if it was in the Word. 
and there, there comes the, uh, you know, uh, there comes the issues. What we conceive when we first uh, decide to deceive people is, uh, you know, it takes a lot of creative word twisting, bending, selective interpretations to come up with a doctrine that's going to last for 2,000 years um, if the majority are going to, uh, you know, go along with it. Because today's church arose from Judaism, what should it do? The Jews are monotheistic. They believe in one mighty one. Do we continue to maintain that or change theology to align with thousands of polytheistic pantheists who are coming into the church? They believed in all sorts of mighty ones. So what do we do? Well, they went for the numbers. They went for the numbers. Well, we have three deities too that we worship. The root of the issue focused on the essence of the Father and Son, and what about the Holy Spirit? Is it a power, a person, a ghost, a specter, a cloud, a phantom, or something else? What is it? That's never explained. Well, the Bible explains it. It's pretty simple. Understanding the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament will give us the necessary foundation to understand it in the New Testament. Simple as that. Contrary to popular notions, the Holy Spirit did not come first at Pentecost in Acts 2. In fact, it was... It was active all the way back at creation, Genesis chapter 1. Furthermore, the church did not begin in Acts 2, Pentecost. The ecclesia, or assembly, was already in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Read Acts 7.38. Read 1 Corinthians 10. He called it the assembly in the wilderness, the, quote, church. We don't use church because it's got some some pagan ramifications. So we use assembly like they did there, the ecclesia, the called out. So our teachings must tie into theirs, into what was given in the Old Testament. Not everything. We understand there was some changes in administration, some changes in the priesthood, but the fundamentals are there and should be there. We can't throw it out. Yahweh's people are of Israel. Paul tells us that, Romans 9 and 11. We're grafted into Israel. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. It means we're grafted in with the same type of beliefs, with the same promises, with the same hope, everything that Israel had. Yahweh only made one covenant with one people, and that was Israel. So it's not a whole new group identity that replaces Israel, as so many think. Genesis 1-2 is the first time the Spirit is mentioned. Quote, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. I have a hard time seeing some kind of body out there floating around. Kyle and Delich's commentary has a fascinating interpretation here. It says, moved is a kind of energizing. I quote, the creative spirit of Elohim the principle of all life, which worked upon the formless, lifeless mass, separating, quick, uh, separating, quickening, and preparing the living forms, which were called into being by the creative words that followed, is applied to the hovering and brooding of a bird over its young to warm them and develop their vital powers. This is in the book Genesis, page 38. It wasn't a person a being, or a ghost floating over the water. A power of Yahweh was doing this. A power of Yahweh. Energizing. Job 26, 13. By his spirit, notice, his spirit, it's not a separate identity, his spirit, he has garnished the heavens, his hand has formed the crooked serpent. His hand. Wait a minute, I thought it was some kind of third person of the Trinity doing this. No, he says his hand did it. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Well, garnish means bring to a state of order and design. Job, and you've got to be careful about quoting Job because his three friends weren't always accurate. But when it says Job answered and said, you can bet on it, Job was giving a straight scoop. So, Garnish means to bring, bring order and design to it. 
He links the spirit and the hand of the creator as the one thing doing it, one being doing it. Colossians 1 speaks of Yahshua as the creator. Notice verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible Elohim, the firstborn of every creature. Notice these words. For by him, Yahshua, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Wait a minute. Where's the spirit? Spirit's there. It's not what they think. And he is, believe, uh, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That is an interesting word, consist. It means hold together or set together. He used Holy Spirit power to make this world come together and become a world. And the same with the universe. The power in the Hebrew is ruach, and it, uh, it means a power, a wind, a breath. If the Holy Spirit is a person, then the Spirit was the creator, right? Not Yahshua. So uh, Paul had it wrong, I guess. No, he didn't have it wrong. He had it right. As someone said, if the Holy Spirit is a person and Yahshua was conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he prayed to the wrong father. Everything physical is held together by the same power that created it. You know what? get into atomic things and molecules. This podium right here is mostly space. You get down into the atomic level. It's mostly space. It's not solid. It's all space. If you condense it down, it's probably like a pinhead. It has a pretty good weight to it, but it's all space because there's so much space between atoms. They're, they're not nudged up against each other. And that's how we can combine chemicals and stuff. Everything physical is held together by this power. So what holds it together with all that space in it, what is that? What holds it together? Forces of attraction at the atomic level. Where does that come from? Atoms have what they call valence force, developed or derived from the protons and the, the electrons. And that's how atoms with certain valence can combine with other elements. With, it fills that valence. Anyway, um, it's been a long time since I had chemistry, but I kind of remember that part. But anyway, this force can only be from the Holy Spirit because it says so. By him, all things are held together. They're all held together. All matter came into existence by it, and it holds it together. There's no other explanation. Science can't explain why mass attracts mass, why huge suns can hold huge planets around it by attraction. They can't explain why. They just know it does. You know, they, they can't understand why mass attracts mass. They, they can't understand why positive and negative attract each other and two positives repel each other. Why gravity exists, they can't explain that either. How about uh, magnets, magnetism? You know, I, I got some magnets, and what I find out about magnets is they never run out of attraction. Notice that? They're always as strong as they always were. There's no running down of batteries or anything. Magnets are always the same power. And they flip it around, they both repel. Flip it this way, they attract. How does that work? Science doesn't really know. How does that work? Where does it come from? Where does that force come from? Well, they're magnetized. Yeah, but where does that magnetize come from? Paul wrote, by him all things consist or cohere or hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says of Yahshua that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Power dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite, dynamics. He holds everything together by his power. Consist means to move or be conveyed or born with a suggestion of force of speed, like a gust of wind. A force from Messiah, the preserver of the universe. In the Old Testament, spirit is translated from this word Hebrew, ruach. It is used 400 times in its noun and verb forms. 
It means wind or breath, wind or breath. When he breathed into Adam's nostrils, that was the ruach, the, the breath of life, and he became a living being. Its exact parallel in the New Testament is pneuma, where we get pneumatic tires, pump them up with air. Pneuma, same exact meaning in the Greek. Wind, breath, power. It's a sacred power by which Yahweh and his son accomplish their work. John 5.26 says the spirit proceeds from the father. It's like an extension of him. That's how they do their active work, through the power of the spirit. And they only have to speak it. Imagine. Imagine you're in the spirit. I mean, really, you're a spirit being, and you want to go up to Mars. You're going to sit and, uh, you know, fire up the engines and travel for a few days. You just have to think it. You think it and you're there because there's no space existing when you're spirit being. Space and time are gone. You're there immediately. So a spirit being, and one day, if we're faithful, we'll be spirit beings, all we have to do is think something and be there. You know, we can go to the far ends. Well, there is no end to the universe, I don't believe, because it says there's no end to his creation. But just think about it. How about that? Let's take a trip to uh, Jupiter and see what it looks like. How, how about the uh, rings of Saturn? Let's go up there. Just, there we are. Take a look. Well, as we said, the Spirit extends, ex, is an extension of the Father, like his arm. Here are some examples of Spirit power. Miriam is told by an angel in Luke one thirty-five, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the highest, that's Yahweh, the power of the highest shall overshadow you. The Spirit comes, the power overshadows you. Luke 4.14, And Yahshua returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. There again, he just thought it and he was there. Romans 1.4, remember how he walked through walls? I mean, he didn't really walk, he was just there. They were all up in this upper room. There's Yahshua standing there, where you come from? Right through the wall or whatever. It didn't matter. He's not held back by anything physical. So he returned in the power of the Spirit, Romans 1.4, and declared to be the son of Elohim with power according to the spirit of holiness. Spirit is holy because it belongs to Yahweh and Yahshua. That makes it holy. Micah 3.8, but truly I am full of power by the spirit of Yahweh. Not a separate essence. It belongs to Yahweh. How can the spirit be a person? Think a minute. In the scriptures, the spirit has no name, as do Yahweh and Yahshua. You ever seen the spirit given a name? No, it's always the Holy Spirit. Ruach HaKodesh. No one ever prayed to the spirit. You ever seen anybody pray to the spirit in the scriptures? No. In his letters, Paul greeted the brethren with Yahweh and Yahshua, but never with the Holy Spirit. To wit, he says, grace be unto you and peace from Yahweh our Father and the Master, Yahshua the Messiah, period. This is what he did all the way through his letters. No mention of a spirit. I think if I was a spirit, a person of spirit, I'd feel kind of slighted. But when you're not a person, you don't feel slighted. When you understand what the spirit really is. So, sometimes personality is applied to the spirit, and that gets people all confused, as in John 16. But if you understand it's an extension of Yahweh and Yahshua, it's always referred to as their spirit. It is they and their attributes that are being expressed, not a separate deity with its own attributes. It's a common grammatical device. Consider Psalm 98.1. His right hand... And his holy arm have gotten him the victory. Does that mean his hand and his arms are persons? Or just extensions of himself? Well, in truth, his spirit is an extension of himself. The grammatical term is called synecdoche, where uh, you refer to a part of something as the whole. Such, such like, uh, how do you like my new wheels? Hey, they're great, but where's the rest of the car? No, you understand, that means the car, right? Part for the whole. Um, 
the, the face that launched a, a thousand ships, you know, the old Helen of Troy idea. That's called synecdoche. It wasn't a face launching ships, but a person. So when it talks about these, this personification, this uh, part of something as if it was a deity, that's just the way, and basically the way Hebrew works. And the Greek takes off of the Hebrew. It's a literary device. And so is personification. It attaches human attributes to things. Deuteronomy 32.42, it says, Arrows are said to be made drunk and the sword devours. That's personification. They're obviously not alive, but that's how it's used in this, uh, this grammatical sense. Joshua 24.27, where a stone is said to be a witness, and it, it, it uh, hears all the words of Yahweh. Does that mean stones are alive? No. Psalm 104.19, the sun knows his going, so the sun has a mind. No, that's personification, as if it were human, but it's just a figure of speech. Isaiah 55, 12, the mountains, we sing this one, the mountains and the hills will break forth with singing and trees shall clap their hands. Mountains, hills, and trees praising with singing and clapping? No, it's personification again. So when it talks about the spirit as having human attributes, again, it's personification. It's Yahweh's power put in human terms so that we can understand it. It's metaphor. The Hebrew is great at this. It loves symbolism. It loves allegory. That's why it's so colorful. It's so colorful. And many other figures of speech. And often these are misunderstood as literal. And that's where a lot of people get their doctrines confused because they're taking it literally. Just as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. A parable is misunderstood to say that people go to heaven and that we uh, uh, hellfire exists. And uh, Lazarus is going to, he's in hellfire. It's, again, it's a parable. But it sure makes a point. It sticks with you, doesn't it? But you can never illustrate a, if you're given a message, illustrate it with a story. You ever notice how people kind of perk up when they hear a story? They like to hear stories. Well, Yasha used it all the time. He used parables all the time. And people loved it. And they caught on, at least the ones that had an ear to hear. But Yahweh and Yahshua's spirit does more than create life and sustain the physical universe. When John 16, 13 says the spirit of truth will come and guide you into all truth, Yahshua was using personification. In the Old Testament, we see spirit empowerment and spirit endowment. And these are the two different aspects of this, primary aspects of the spirit in the Old Testament, well, even in the New Testament. Empowerment and endowment. And what do I mean by that? Well, the first is temporary, usually given to complete a task, as in to build the tabernacle. Spiritual endowment is longer lasting. It sticks with the person. When, we're, when we lay hands on people, they get a spiritual endowment that works with them and changes, helps change them, change their character, change their mind, change their attitude. In the Old Testament, we see a half a dozen individuals given empowerment to accomplish a certain task. We got Eldad and Medad, Numbers 11:26, given the spirit of prophecy or the spirit to speak and teach. Remember, Joshua was upset with them. He told Moses, make them shut up. And Moses says, I wish all the always people had the spirit and could prophesy. Kind of like the, the same thing happened in the New Testament, remember? With, uh, with Yahshua. Well, Bezalel, this guy apparently had some pretty good, uh, pretty good craftsmen. He had, he had a gift of craftsmanship. So Yahweh gives him more spirit to create an even better tabernacle and better furnishings for the tabernacle to make it look really good. Actually, you know, outstanding. Joseph, Genesis 41, was given wisdom. And from that, he was made second of command under Pharaoh by the Spirit. Balaam, remember old Balaam, Numbers 24? He was a non-Israelite prophet whom King Balak of Moab sought out. He wanted to curse Israel. 
So he got Obalam. He was some kind of prophet, of old non-Israelite prophet. But in his ignorance, Obalam was stopped. And he couldn't get his donkey going again. And the donkey got so tired of it, the donkey turned around and said, Are you blind? Look what's in front of me. Got this angel with his huge sword standing right in the way. And old, old Balaam said, Come on, come on, come on, come on. Even the, I guess you could almost say the, the donkey had a little bit of spirit. Never thought of that one. But Then you got David, Psalm 51. He prayed, take not your spirit from me. What was he talking about? Now, this is a spirit of endowment. Because obviously, he had a long-term part of the spirit, a long-term portion of the spirit. So he says, don't take it from me. So you can lose the spirit too. You can quench the spirit. And that's what David was afraid of after he committed sin. So clearly you can quench the spirit by your actions. That also means you can hinder the spirit to the extent that the spirit power will, uh, will be inhibited. Because remember, the spirit is going to resurrect the faithful. So you don't want to inhibit that spirit. Just because you have the spirit now doesn't mean it's going to always be with you. And that speaks again to the once saved, always saved doctrine, which the Bible does not support. Paul doesn't support it over and over. He says, I strive, strive for perfection. Not that I already have salvation. I myself can be a castaway. I don't know how they can not read that or how we can read Hebrews 6 and find all these people, uh, all the things that can stop you from being resurrected. So he had a spiritual endowment by his own words. Uh, Othniel, we were talking about, we're, we're studying judges in the Bible study. Othniel, the first judge. His nephew, this nephew of Caleb, delivered Israel from the oppression of the king of Mesopotamia, who, by the way, his name has 17 letters, and I wouldn't even try to pronounce it. Then you have Azariah. These are all the people that had the spirit. Azariah in 2 Chronicles 15.1, he was a prophet. You don't hear much about him, but he was a prophet, had the spirit. Then you had the 70 elders, Numbers 11, given the spirit to help with the work. And many, many prophets, obviously they had the spirit. And I always say if someone makes a prediction, you know, like the world's going to end in two more years, and it doesn't happen, I say to myself, you know, the spirit doesn't make mistakes. If you're actually led by the spirit, obviously you're not, you're not true. You're a false prophet. And... and uh, Deuteronomy says you don't listen to them. If, they, if their prophecy doesn't come to pass, you're done with them. Because, again, the Spirit, which is Yahweh, doesn't make mistakes. We got a clear picture of a Spirit endowment indwelling the believer and causing changes in the heart in the New Testament, Romans 5.5. 5. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of Elohim is Shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Spirit. Love is a spirit power, obviously. By the Spirit, the love of Elohim is shed in our hearts, which is given unto us, he says. We have 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now, he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is Elohim, who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. That's like a down payment. In other words, we don't get it all in one load. It's to grow within us. And as he finds us worthy, obviously more spirit is given to do greater things. But it's a portion of the spirit. How does that work if the Holy Spirit's a person? 1 John 3, 24, And he that keeps his commandment dwells in him, and he in him. Speaking of Yahweh, in him. So you got... A spirit in you, and you got Yahweh in you? How's that work? If you understand how it's working, you understand that these are influences of power, holy influences. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he's given us. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's kind of like we read in Isaiah when uh, in the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 30, 31, when you'll hear a voice behind you saying, whoa, 
this is the way. Don't go that direction. This is the way. Walk in this, not that way. That's the wrong way. We don't have people or anything. I should say people. We don't have anything doing that to us today. We just fall into it and make mistakes and have to repent. But it's going to be guiding people in the millennial kingdom. Now, the rest of verse 9, if any man has not the spirit of Messiah, he is none of his. You have to have the spirit, brethren, or you're none of his. The spirit will not raise you at the resurrection because the spirit is what draws you. If that's a separate and equal being in a trinity, why is it connected to the father and son and operate only if they allow it? Ask yourself that. How does that work? The charismatic movement says the evidence for the spirit is to speak in unknown tongues. Just babble in anything. Well, that's not what's happening in Acts 2. Because they, there were more than 15 nations and dialects there. And they all heard the apostles, the, ten, uh, the uh, 120, speak in their own tongue. That's what's happening there. Their own tongue. They could understand it. There were known languages. Second, there are many, many other important ways that the Spirit is manifest. Not just that way. Because the gifts of the Spirit are all different. They're not just one. But they always want that one, right? They always want that one. They can be charismatic if they have that one. Oh, I got the Spirit. Well, guess what? That's the least of the Spirits, the Bible says. And it also says it'll wane, the Bible says. And not everyone's going to get it, the Bible says, but they still have the Spirit. How does that work? And it's not the best spiritual gift, the Bible says. Well, they're they're deluded by what they call ecstaticism. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, there's no passage that I can find that indicates in any way that a prophet, a priest, someone endowed with the Spirit, had a frenzied experience. Can you show me one? I got $100 I'll give you. You can show me one. Now, Othniel is a different, that was a whole different thing, you know, with priests of Baal and all that. that see, that, that, that's where this comes from. They were cutting themselves and they were screaming and wanting Baal to come down, you know. What, what can we do to get him to come? Let's go nuts, you know, and then maybe he'll come. Not everyone with the Spirit is going to speak in tongues, and it is not the best spiritual gift. Not that it couldn't happen. Anything can happen. But there's nothing in the Old Testament where they ever did that. And that's where we get our foundation. We get our foundation in the Old Testament. Neither is there any passage where the experience is ever demanded by another as evidence of the prophet's authority. Well, I want, to, I want you to show me you got the Spirit, so do your thing. Talk in tongues. That's not there either. You don't have to have that to see that a person has a Spirit. To the contrary, numerous portions tell of times when such a demand would have been expected if ecstaticism was considered a badge of authority, as they claim. But none of them ever show it have been displayed or demanded. A reference also explains, it's called the uh, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I thought it was pretty good. It also explains the roots of such things as speaking in tongues and being slain in the Spirit under the heading, The Nature of Ecstaticism. Quote, It is essential first to understand what is meant by ecstaticism. What is this phenomenon that numerous scholars believe early prophets of Israel practiced? The idea and pursuit of ecstaticism is believed to have originated in Asia Minor. It is thought to have moved from there westward into Greece and eastward into Syria and Palestine toward the end of the second millennium BCE. Thus the Canaanites came to accept the practice and the thinking is that Israel became influenced by them. Various forms of ecstaticism have since been found in many parts of the world as people have sought revelation from their GODs by this means. 
Probably Delphi in Greece, with its famous center of oracular pronouncement, was the best-known ancient ecstatic symbol. Some guy named E.O. James describes the activity there as follows. It would appear the inspired prophetess, when an oracle was demanded, arrayed herself in long robes and golden headdress and a wreath of laurel leaves and drink of the sacred sprint, Cassotis. She then, it is said, seated herself on a tripod over a vaporous cleft in the chasm of a cave below, unless she actually entered the cave to encounter the vapor, in order to attain a state of youth, youth <laughs> a state of enthusiasm. In this condition, she gave counsel as the mouthpiece of Apollo. So she had to be drugged up. We had a lady at the feast, one of our early feasts. They were told, we were at a state campground for tabernacles. We told her, the state does not allow alcohol in, this, in your cabin or anywhere on the property. But one night at midnight, I heard something very strange right next to where she was, right next to us. And uh, it was clearly demonic spirit coming out of her mouth. Where did it come from? You know, they, they don't call it spirits for nothing. And she was told not to, but she brought it in. She brought alcohol in. And next thing you know, this happened. And uh, next morning, well, even, even I'll tell the way, one other thing. Margie and I went in to talk to her. And she was just like an animal, you know. And uh, we started to walk out. And right above, I heard a siren going off. Right above our heads. There wasn't no siren up there, just a smooth ceiling. But I heard it as clear as could. And I think even uh, Jose said he heard it where he was. He heard it another part of the camp, this siren going off. You tell me there isn't power. There isn't unholy spirits out there. And the next morning, she had no clue. She said, people told me I'd do that. She had no clue what happened. It actually took over her mind. You see, and when you do this kind of stuff, the Bible says you take control of your mind. You don't let your mind go because then you're allowing an influence to come in and take over your mind. You don't do that. And I think that's why Yahweh says you don't get drunk. You know, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever's deceived thereby is not wise. So it happens. And... This is what was happening in these pagan peoples. They were seeking that power through, through narcotics, through vapors, through anything they could do to alter their mind. Well, certain uh, form, I'm, I'm continuing the quote, certain forms of ecstasy were carried out only as a ritualistic exercise for some festal celebration. But the type of ecstasy to which Prophecy is compared, was motivated by a desire for revelation. Kind of like the prophets of Baal up there. Eliah had to battle. They wanted the influence of that pagan deity for revelation, for doing something great in their, in their, in their eyes, in their, in their lives. Um. The spirit world was sought, and to that end, efforts were made to gain a release from contact with the world of reality. They wanted to leave the world of reality. To achieve the ecstatic state, various means were employed, including a sacred dance to rhythmic music, breathing poisonous gas, and even the use of narcotics. The thought was to have the natural powers of reason set aside so the mind might be open to a reception of the divine word. An outside influence taken over. Accompanying this rapport with the spirit realm was normally a physical seizure, which T.H. Robertson says as follows. It consists of a fit or attack which affected the whole body. Sometimes the limbs were stimulated to violent action and wild leaping and contortions resulted. These might be more or less rhythmical 
and the phenomenon would present the appearance, the appearance of wild and frantic dance. At other times, there was more or less complete constriction of the muscles, and the condition became almost cataleptic, frozen, frozen. The vocal cords were sometimes involved. Noises and sounds were poured out, which might be unrecognizable as human speech. That's scary, isn't it? Normally, a priest would be on hand to interpret such utterances. Wow. For these were thought to be the speaking of the G.O.D.s. End quote. Does this not sound like the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? That, Elo, that uh, Elia took on, dancing around, cutting themselves, tr- tr- crying out to Baal, trying to get him to listen. Interesting parallels, isn't there? He always says to guard the gates of your mind because there's Holy Spirit, then there's the unholy spirit. So we look back into the uh, history of the Holy Spirit, we see that it's a lot more rich than what, at least I was led to believe when I was in churchianity. I'd had very little experience with it. I didn't understand it. Um, I was just told that it's part of the Apostles' Creed or the, the other, uh, other creeds, you know, that were developed. And I never saw it in the scriptures. <laughs> where is it? Where, where are those words out of the scriptures? Well, they aren't there because these, these uh, rules by committee went all the way up way up into the Middle Ages, 1500 and something like was the last. I mean, it goes on. No, there's the Vatican II, I guess. It even goes farther. So um, these things were, were hammered out. These, these things were hammered out, and our church accepted them. We actually said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Um, and we didn't know. I didn't know what we were saying. I just went along with it. We were talking before the services with, uh, how people respond, if everybody else is doing it, they do it too. Not knowing why. You know, why do you keep, why do you got, got to look for Easter eggs? I don't know. Something we've always done. It's just a tradition. It's something we do. That's part of our, part of what we are. Um, why do you give gifts at Xmas time, put them under a tree, and then pass them out to one another? I thought they gave their gifts to Yahshua. Oh, well, it's just something that we, we do. We want to make everybody happy and feel good and share the joy. And, but where is it in the scripture? Well, it doesn't, it's not in the scriptures, you know, but that's just what we do. And we're not going to change. Figure it out. Anyway, you know, when you get baptized, uh, and Pentecost, of course, is a big baptism day, uh, it, every one of us learns that we have to be committed to something, either to this world and it's temporary rewards, temporary everything, or we live for Yahweh and reap the blessings for eternity. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a real sharp mind to figure out what should be done, what's the best road to take, something last eternity or something that's gone in 70, 80 years. It's a choice we all have to make. Some make that choice early in life. Others later, some very late, but the majority never will. They never will. They think somehow, by the grace of Yahweh, they're going to be raised. Well, they think they're raised already. You know, we're already the, the, the person is in heaven when he dies. That's what they're told. I always wonder, where does the resurrection fit in there? Well, remember a minister once said, you've got to come back for your body. And that's where, he, wait a minute. Why do you need a body? It says you change the spirit. You don't need a body in the spirit world. That would only hinder you. You don't need a body. What are you coming back for? Why, why would he come back if you're already there? They don't really have an answer. I don't, maybe you've heard one that makes a little more sense. Still, it's not scriptural, whatever it is. But uh, the majority never really think about these things. We talked about that in the Bible study. There's knowledge and then there's perception. There's knowledge, just, you know, this is how things work. And then there's the, the understanding how things work and why they work, and, you know, which is a whole other level of understanding. But people always, they exist on the surface, super, you know, uh, 
surface understanding, and they don't want to think past that because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to leave what they always believed. It's uncomfortable what the family might say. They might not like it. You know, we've all been through that. We've all been through it. I'm sorry, but I live for Yahweh. If you can give me salvation, go ahead. But he's the one that gives me salvation. I've got to live by his word. And I wish you'd come along and live with it me, uh, for me and with me. But now people are so stuck in their surface understanding. Um, everything is so superficial when it comes to the Bible. I don't even read the Bible. I don't even know what it is. And uh, it's getting more and more that way. Of course, we all know that. Until Yahshua's going to come back and say, we've got a few things we've got to work out here on earth, people. Uh, you've kind of lost everything. We're going to start from scratch. I'm going to have my faithful. They're going to start teaching you what the Bible says, what my will is, what it was from the beginning that you left from Adam all the way on. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to transform this entire world, and you're going to be, oh, so unbelievably happy when you see everything working according to my way. So much of this evil, criminal activity, uh, sin will be gone. Or at least we're going, to, we're going to minimize it pretty good. And by the end, we'll have it pretty... We'll have it perfect. And then Yahweh can come and make his throne right here on earth at Zion. So we're in the process now of, you know, changing us first. I don't, I don't try to put anybody else down who doesn't have that understanding. I just pray that they will. If they want to know, fine, you know, we'll help you. Because we were there once too. We were in darkness too. We thought we had it. We thought, yeah, this is, this is great. Half hour at church a week, and I'd fulfill my religious obligation for the week. We thought that was it. We were on the surface, skimming along the surface, not even thinking there's anything deeper than that. But you've got to look into the scriptures. You've got to find out. And people have asked us, you know, you, you explain what you believe, and they'll say, which Bible are you reading anyway? And I always say, same one you've got. Go into your closet, dust off the, the Bible you got there. Open it up and start reading it. And you prove us wrong. If we're wrong, we'll change. And we, we have changed a few things through the years. We don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. Guess what? And if they think they do and you hold them into a contradiction, well, we got to go. We can't. Uh, we, we don't understand. We'll, we'll go ask the minister. You go ask the minister. You go ask the minister for me because uh, I don't really know, you know. But we're here to change us first so that we might be an able teacher in Yahweh's kingdom. And that's what we're after. But it's a long process of learning and studying and trying to do what's right according to Yahweh's will. And I hope we can all work together toward that goal one day to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into life everlasting. May Yahweh bless you.